Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Quebec's Bill 21, banning face coverings for religious reasons. Should this be an issue we're talking about in the federal election? Why aren't we? SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould, the scandal has reared its ugly head again as we start off the campaign. And Supercrawl is coming to the hammer again this weekend. What makes this event so great? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Daniel Weinstock is with us. James McGill, professor of the Faculty of Law and director of the McGill Institute for Health and Social Policy, McGill University. He is with us now. Daniel, thank you so much for the time. Sorry about the name uh, switch for you. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Are you? I'm doing fine. All right. Uh, Why are the federal leadership candidates uh, not doing more to uh, condemn or or at least mention uh, what is happening in Quebec? Well, in a word, um, the law is, uh, you know, regardless of what uh, pundits uh, think about it, the law is is still quite popular here uh, in Quebec. Uh, It hasn't really been implemented yet. But really, you know, where the rubber hits the road with respect to this law is with with school teachers. And we're just in the first few days of uh, the school year. And so, uh, you know, I think that as implementation proves itself to be messier than uh, perhaps the government of Quebec had thought, uh, support for the law will start uh, getting a little bit softer. But right now it's quite popular. Uh, and it's being, um, you know, uh, uh, it was put forward by a, a government, uh, which is still immensely popular in the province of Quebec. The CAC is polling around 50%, which is, you know, uh, you have to go back to the PQ of Lucien Bouchard to find uh, numbers uh, that high. So, uh, you know, I think understandably the federal leaders have to tread extremely, extremely carefully if they want to avoid what I think is one of the potential stories of this election in Quebec, which is the resurgence of the Bloc Québécois, which, uh, you know, has, I think, quite rationally and and, uh, and uh, you know, prudently uh, decided that they were really going to hitch their wagon uh, to the CAC and present themselves as the federal defenders of uh, the kinds of laws that the CAC has put uh, in place. Uh, is, is this an election issue? Is this one of those uh, items that uh, most leaders don't want to touch? I think it is. Um, I think, uh, again, it's very popular. And uh, people uh, remember the fate of Tom Mulcair, uh, who came into uh, the election that he ran as leader of the NDP uh, with a with you know a lot of support in Quebec, 60 seats, and uh, riding high in the polls at the beginning of the election. Now you know political scientists are still crunching the numbers to see whether this is what caused his eventual fall uh, in Quebec. But you'll remember that he actually took the stand on one of the predecessor uh, laws to this one that was put forward in Quebec uh, on religious uh, signs in the public sphere. And uh, at the time where he said, "Look, you know, I'm a." I believe in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and I don't think that governments should limit what people wear. Uh, from that point on, his political fate uh, started taking a rather negative turn. So people remember that, and you know they don't want to be in uh, in, in Mulcair's shoes. Uh, Justin Trudeau certainly has a lot to do uh, to lose in Quebec. Uh, he's you know uh, right now uh, sitting on quite a number of seats. Uh, Andrew Scheer obviously hopes to make some inroads. So um, you know I think that. Uh, they, all, they obviously have the pretext of saying, look, you know, they invoke the notwithstanding clause, and the notwithstanding clause is part of the Constitution. In fact, it was, it's there at the demand, not of Quebec, but of uh, Western provinces back in the late 70s and early 80s. So they do have a pretext to say we're not going to touch it, and I think that's what, <laughs> that's what they're going to do, not touch it for the duration of the campaign. Uh, where does this leave the NDP in Quebec? Well, you know, the NDP is in, is in some pretty uh, serious straits. I mean, uh, you know... Um, <laughs> 
it will not have escaped attention that uh, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the party, uh, though people seem to like him when he shows up on Quebec television shows, uh, you know, response is, is usually quite warm. Uh, he does wear a fairly conspicuous religious sign at a time where Quebecers have decided, again, rightly or wrongly, uh, that they don't want the public officials displaying their religious uh, allegiances uh, too clearly. There's also, I think, a, a, a deeper, uh, a, you know, I mean, we, we remember the Jack Layton orange wave and the 60 seats and then, you know, a pretty good result for Tom Mulcair, despite what I said a minute ago. Um, but before that, before the, the Layton orange wave, uh, you know, the NDP had been seen very much in Quebec as a kind of a, you know, an Anglo party, a party of English Canada, uh, you know, with one seat in the legislature before Layton uh, took over. So I would say that, you know, the NDP is now beginning to look again to Quebecers like what it, you know, looked like before Jack Layton. And I, I fear, you know, for the NDP that, uh, you know, that might translate in a bit of an electoral drubbing. I don't think there's a single safe seat for them here. Now, Quebecers, I should hasten to add, are very fickle voters. If you were to go back to the first day of the campaign uh, when Jack Layton won, I believe that was 2011, you would find that the NDP was very low in the polls. Everyone was taken by surprise by something that seemed to have uh, taken place in the last few days of the campaign, a kind of bandwagon effect. But, uh, you know, I don't foresee that uh, now Jack Layton, after all, was a native son, a Quebecer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, again, Quebecers tend to be fickle. They tend to uh, uh, bandwagon. You know, the last four elections, they gave very healthy majorities to, uh, to different parties, the Bloc, uh, the Liberals, the, the NDP. Um, but I don't see that happening for the NDP in this election. So the orange wave of days gone by is just completely wiped out? You know, I think... Um, I don't see signs. I don't see any signs of it uh, of it uh, uh, moving very much. Now, in the weeks uh, leading up to the election, Jagmeet Singh, perhaps realizing that his appeal within Quebec was going to be limited, named Alexandre Boulris, who's one of the Quebec um, members of Parliament, to be in effect a, a co-leader, a kind of a, a Quebec Lieutenant Plus, if you will. And I was walking around uh, today as the posters were going up, and he's very prominent. Uh, you know, he appears next to Jagmeet Singh in a lot of the posters, uh, essentially as a kind of a co uh, a co leader. So, you know, whether that will uh, take any, uh, whether that will give them any momentum, you know, remains to be uh, remains to be seen. Uh, again, I think the story might be, if I were to, you know, uh, make a bold prediction, uh, the Bloc Québécois, which many had given up for dead, um, you know, uh, in the last couple of elections, have elected a fairly uh, charismatic and capable leader. And I think they've made the politically wise decision of presenting themselves essentially as the federal CAC, uh, the federal Coalition Avenir Quebec, and trying to get a little bit of the spinoff of the immense popularity that the provincial government uh, still has in the province. Uh, is that or will the bloc be Quebec's, uh, Quebec's third option? Will that be their protest vote? You know, it, 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 it might, they might not see it as a, as a, as a, as a protest vote. And it very much depends, I think, on uh, what the, the other parties do. Uh, I think the other parties, uh, the bloc, rather, is hoping to bait the other parties into uh, going into sort of Quebec identity issues, either immigration or uh, Bill 21, uh, in the hope that they can then stand up and say, look, you know, we are the only party on the federal scene uh, that is in line with, uh, you know, Quebec uh, values, perhaps greater appeal of nationalism and of certain identity issues in Quebec than in the rest of Canada. So whether the, the other federal parties will take the bait or not, I think will be a large part of the story of where this election goes in Quebec. 
In regard to Bill 21, uh, how do we explain to the rest of the country Quebec's position on this? Uh, Because, you know, many say that if this was happening in any other province in any other uh, part of the country, that there'd be hell to pay. Uh, How come Quebec can do this? How come Quebec can get away with this? There's the blunt question. How can Quebec get away with this? I think there are two questions that you asked. One is very easy to answer. How can Quebec get get away with this? Uh, You know, we have a notwithstanding clause. Uh, that right. has been put in the Constitution, and, you know, it is part of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Now, I, as an observer, uh, you know, may, may disagree with uh, the role that it plays, but there it is. And it mm-hmm. was, again, I should add, uh, insisted upon by the Western provinces rather than by Quebec back in the day. Why is it so popular here, whereas in the rest of Canada, perhaps it wouldn't get as much uh, traction? The first thing I would say is that you know, we should be careful before we said that, say that the rest of Canada is completely immune to the appeal of this sort of thing. In a recent poll that was published just a month ago, 37% of Canadians uh, said that they would rather that their federal officials not wear any, uh, their elected officials not wear any religious signs. Now, elected officials, that goes further than anything that's in the Quebec uh, bill. The other thing I would say is that, you know, there has been a successful uh, selling job, which I think, you know, if you were to ask me as a as a political theorist, uh, is, is, is based on, you know, mistakes. Uh, but there has been a successful selling job, both of a certain uh, class of the, uh, of the media, but also of, uh, of the political class, both the Parti Québécois and the CAC, um, to say, in essence, uh, that the defense, that this is part of the defense, that this is um, the same thing as defending the, uh, the French language, you know, uh, defending secularism, defending uh, neutral-looking public uh, service is uh, sort of like defending the French language, part of Quebec identity. Now, historically, that actually isn't the case at all. Quebec has been quite uh, a secular society, but a secularism that has been quite open to manifestations, public uh, and otherwise, of religiosity. You know, Catholic symbols are certainly present uh, all over the place. But I think if you asked a lot of Quebecers, they would not, you know, uh, they would be shocked if you were to tell them that this looks and feels like a racist policy. They would say, well, no, this is a defense of uh, Quebec values, and it applies equally to everyone. Now, again, uh, I think that that would be easily, uh, that's an argument that could be easily uh, uh, defeated. It obviously weighs much more heavily on the groups that you mentioned in your introduction who do wear conspicuous religious signs. But I think that the selling job, uh, you know, that this is part of Quebec's identity, which makes us different from the rest of Canada, has been politically quite effective, at least till now. Couldn't every other country say, though, we're just trying to protect our identity and that's why we have a racist view of immigration? Well, you know, the fact is, the fact is, some of them do. I guess, uh, I, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't France take more of this position? Why well, doesn't... France, you know, yeah, if, well. you, if you mention France or Italy, there are a lot of very similar laws on the books. Indeed, yeah. some of them are much more stringent. France bans religious signs, uh, veils, for example, not just for teachers, but also for pupils, for students. Um, there was a decision that was actually, uh, you know, uh, confirmed by the European courts uh, that says that, you know what, if uh, you have uh, crosses that are uh, up in classrooms, uh, well, that's okay, and it needn't be covered by a ban on other religious signs, because crosses are patrimonial, they're part of uh, Italian identity, and therefore they needn't be, uh, you know, covered by a ban on religious signs. So I think if you look around the world, North America, um, you know, certainly Quebec is an exception within North America, uh, but if you look at, um, you know, at the world as a whole, and even just Europe, you know, look at liberal democracies like Europe, uh, Italy, France, that we tend to think of as being sort of similar to us, you'll find very similar laws. Now, 
I, you know, I hate to add that I'm not defending them. I've been very public in my opposition yep. to them. But this is, I think, a trend. And Quebecers have, I think, historically seen themselves as perhaps a little bit more European than other uh, jurisdictions, be they Canadian or, or U.S., uh, in Canada. And so if you look at that broader picture, you'll see that Quebec is actually uh, not, uh, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, it's hard to single Quebec out. So why okay. don't we see more of this in the rest of Canada then? Because, I mean, you know, we all came from the same place. We're all immigrants. I'm first generation sure. Canadian. Sure. I mean, why why don't we see this in the rest of Canada? Uh I mean, you know, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like Stephen Harper saying, "Old stock Canadian." Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so I think it's a very complicated issue, and I, there are a lot of things to say. But I'll say one. Um, I think that uh, despite the number that I cited, the thirty-seven percent of Canadians who would rather that their politicians not wear religious symbols, and therefore, uh, you know, showing that at least you know some proportion of our population is open to this sort of thing, I think that there is a kind of an allegiance to. You know, we used to talk about something called charter patriotism, the idea that in the rest of Canada, uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was enshrined in our Constitution in 1982, became a real pillar of Canadian identity. And uh, there's a kind of a taboo associated with uh, going against its values or invoking the notwithstanding clause. And, you know, it could be there's still a narrative in Quebec, according to which uh, the 1982 Constitution um, was a kind of, a, you know, a, a, an attack. On, uh, on Quebec, the Night of the Long Knives is still something that is uh, talked about here. And so I think that that, that hold of uh, the Charter um, as a kind of a, a pillar of identity is not quite as present in, um, in, in Quebec, uh, not to the same degree. So I think that that's one element uh, of, uh, of the explanation. Another part of the explanation, you know, you're talking to me from Ontario, which has a rate of immigration which is much higher than uh, Quebec. Montreal is an immigrant society, but if you go about 50 kilometers in any direction outside of Montreal. It's a fairly homogenous society, whereas I think many other parts of Canada and its largest province in particular, Ontario, you know, isn't just committed to multiculturalism at the level of ideology. It also just lives it in its everyday life because of the composition of the population, which really has become much more diverse than anywhere, indeed, perhaps in the world. Um, so those are some elements of explanation. Again, I'm not justifying it. I, you know, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll argue with my fellow Quebecers about uh, these kinds of laws till you know, I'm blue in the face. Uh, but I think if we're looking at explanations, those are a couple of explanations that I would reach for. Daniel Weinstock's been with us. James McGill, professor at the Faculty of Law and director of the McGill Institute for Health and Social Policy at McGill University. Daniel, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, here we are, day two of the election campaign, and the SNC-Lavalin scandal has reared its ugly head again. Uh, news breaking yesterday that uh, the RCMP were blocked from uh, talking to some people in the prime minister's office. Also, the day ended with a report that Jody Wilson-Raybould had met with uh, the RCMP uh, quite recently. To talk more about all of that, Tim Powers is with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to be here, Scott. And we can never break up with this issue, can we? This it's... is how our relationship began, and it just continues to linger. Not that I'm not enjoying our time together, but this one keeps going. I can promise you, Tim, long after this fades away, we will continue to chat with you. Oh, Scott, be I promise. my beating heart, and it's not even Valentine's Day. Oh, my. Okay. I suppose you want to talk the substance of this now, do you? Nah, not really. Uh, okay, so first of all, let's start uh, with, with something we were talking about uh, in the last segment, and that is Bill 21 in Quebec. Mm-hmm. 
mm. a lot of uh, the two major leaders have been accused of not really taking a stand on this or standing back and letting the province handle itself. Should the federal leaders be weighing more, uh, weighing in more on this, or does it just simply cost them too many votes in Quebec? Well, the answer is it costs them too many votes in Quebec. But uh, you know what? I just uh, I, I find it frustrating, right? I grew up in the political era of all those Meech Lake debates, and even though I was a fan of Meech Lake, I did have some admiration for my old premier there, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Clyde Wells, saying, you know, uh, that debate was about whether Quebec should be labeled a distinct society or not. I, stop playing around the edges, all of you leaders. Will you really tell us what you think uh, and w- why this is a problem if you're a national leader? I know public opinion in the province is largely in of Quebec is largely in favor of this, but as a federal leader, one who all, all of whom are talking about the benefits of a secular society, how come you're all pussyfooting around this issue, to use an old phrase? How does this play in the rest of the country, especially with the two major leaders' uh, take on it? I think it irritates people, uh, and they say, oh, look, and it doesn't help, right? And when, when we talk about federal provincial tensions, uh, because it's, you know, what, what, what's good for Quebec isn't necessarily good for everybody else. Uh, and if this were happening elsewhere, um, if, where the electoral math is different and there weren't 70 plus seats on the line, uh, provinces would, other provinces, other Canadians would be rightly upset. Um, Anyway, I think it's an abdication of, and I think it's all the federal party leaders who uh, who aren't standing up on it. And I, I do think it frustrates people, but uh, they're all trying to calculate, okay, I'll stay quiet on this. I won't pick a fight with the Quebec premier on this uh, and or his supporters who I need because I need to get my hall of seats out of that province come October 21st. Obviously, we're living in a uh, divisive world. Uh, people are, are 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 on the fringes, uh, opposite opposite sides of the spectrum on on many issues. Um, moving forward, why does the rest of the country uh, not feel that they can be the same way? Does this not just spread the same sort of divisiveness and hate we're trying to stamp out? Yeah, it does, right? And and again, just because it's convenient politics doesn't make it good good policy. I mean, we already see tensions in the West around the way their resources are are treated. You see, we we have in different provinces um, uh, uh, populist parties. You and I have debated what that word has mean before, but parties that are popping up because they're frustrated of this and playing to a segment of society. The more we do this, Scott, the more leaders do this, the more we encourage um, uh, populist parties who perhaps are a bit more extreme in their views to to come to the fore. And, and I don't think that can be good. I mean, give again, not a fan necessarily of everything Pierre Trudeau did. Uh, uh, disagree with a lot of what he did, but I will give him credit and for being courageous and, you know, pushing rights issues and pushing issues around equality. So if we're going to have a a country where from St. John's to Victoria and all the way up north to Inuvik, you you can expect the same sort of uh, disposition and and, and expectations. We got to fight this stuff. Will this divisiveness see a rise in the block again? I don't know because they're all playing footsies with uh, the, uh, the Premier Legault's supporters, right? So I, I 
the block is just so disoriented. On one day they could be dead, on ne- the next day they could be rising. Uh, it, it should potentially work for them, um, but they, I, I think Quebecers have looked at that experiment and, and are starting to wonder, all right, it had a good run, do we need another vehicle? Maybe what it does is it, it changes how Quebec looks at seeing itself represented in the federal parliament. Do they, you know, does Bernier get a boost by this? I don't necessarily think so. Do you elect a few more conservatives who have always been comfortable with, you know, elements of Quebec nationalism? Um, hard to tell because it's hard to know what the real data is coming about out of Quebec on federal parties because I haven't seen enough of a comprehensive survey recently. The most effective um sort of pollster in Quebec, uh, Leger and Leger, the last poll they put out had the Liberals with a reasonable lead and the, and the Conservatives not far behind, well, farther behind, but higher than they have been. So didn't seem to be benefiting the bloc in that sampling. All right, let's talk about the SNC-Lavalin uh, affair. Uh, obviously, the Ethics Commissioner report came out several weeks ago. Uh, by that time, um, many thought that it may make another uh, have another impact on the Liberal Party, but as Mo said, uh, that that decision, that bridge has, has already been crossed. People have already left, or uh, and that's the reason the, the, the Conservatives and the Liberals are tied neck and neck in where they are today. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Bob Fife's article in the Globe and Mail yesterday that came out the day that the uh, rip dropped, talking about the, really nothing new other than, I guess, confirming the RCMP, uh, I, I guess, is not getting the information they need. And furthermore, that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould had uh, been interviewed again uh, recently on all of this. Um, that being said, how, how does this move forward? How does it affect the campaign? Many thought this was over and done with. How does it move forward on this? Well, maybe the most interesting thing in Bob's article uh, was a mention of the fact, and this was kind of instructive, that the RCMP uh, are downing tools until the election is over. And you and I, yes. and many of your listeners will recall, uh, when the tide turned in 2005, 2006, in Stephen Harper's favor, it's when the uh, letter was released to the then NDP MP Judy Washalisa Lee from then RCMP Commissioner Zach Rodelli saying, no, no, we are looking into, um, I believe it was the income trust, the role of certain liberal politicians in the income trust. That helped turn that election. The fact that the RCMP are saying, yeah, or somebody is saying that the RCMP are downing tools, may be the greatest gift that came out of Bob Fife's article yesterday. It did uh, hurt the start of the prime minister's campaign because you saw something unconventional happen, and that was Andrew Scheer, even before the Prime Minister had gone to Rideau Hall to seek the dissolution of Parliament and get the writs of, a, of election issue, Andrew Scheer coming out before focusing on that article, making Justin Trudeau's press conference after he uh, walked out of Rideau Hall, mostly about SNC-Lavalin. And then again last night, second story from the Globe and Mail, Prime Minister's going to have to answer to that today. So, you know, you never want to be in a defensive position if you're leading a campaign and, and one that clearly in the past has shown you to be vulnerable. The Liberals, you've heard them say it on your program, oh, the vote's baked in. Well, maybe it is, but if this story continues in different forms throughout the campaign, uh, it's not going to be helpful for them. That said, Andrew Scheer is not going to win the election or unseat Justin Trudeau 
solely on this alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got to do more than that. But I, I think it it has reemerged again as a, a, a liberal negative that the opposition will continue to play. Does it move four or five percent of voters? Way too early to tell that. Um, what will resonate? Many have talked about like the last election. It was all about change, something different. Uh, for whatever reason, there, there doesn't seem to be a central issue at this point. Um, could the central issue end up becoming one of trust? Who do you believe? Who don't you believe? Well, and that's what the cons- look. The, here, here's what every party wants. So the Justin Trudeau wants it to be about the way forward because so he talks about going backwards being about Stephen Harper. I've been joking today. Well, maybe going backwards, Prime Minister is looking at your last year and a half. You yeah. don't want anybody to see that either. Uh, but go going forward with Justin Trudeau, what he's arguing is, look, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a progressive leader. There have been lots of achievements, et cetera. If you want to continue to have those achievements, have society's core conventions protected, then you need to choose me. Let's talk about Andrew Scheer and how I believe he's vulnerable on social issues. That's where Justin Trudeau wants to go. Andrew Scheer is Justin Trudeau, using his language here, is a liar. You saw him say that a number of times yesterday. You can't believe him. You know, his government is just like other liberal governments. They're, uh, to use great uh, English language, a bunch of dirtbags. You you know, stay away from them. And I'm going to care about your pocketbook, and I'll put you in your pocketbook first. I'm not a rich, entitled trust fund guy. That's the sheer narrative. Uh, The same one is, look, those other two guys, they're basically carbon copies of each other, style issues aside. I'm in this thing for you. People think I'm, you know, done, but uh, you can't just trust Justin. So when he tells you to come back to me, guess what? You should stay or come back to him. You should stay with me if you want a progressive voice. And Elizabeth May, of course, is uh, environment, 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 and maybe I get affordability. And the other guys say, you know, you 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 want to disrupt? Then give me seats. How's that for a synopsis of all four of them? And, you know, is it really uh, quite naive to call the NDP down and out? We remember where Trudeau was heading into the last election, and that was in the third party uh, position. That being said, you know, uh, it's the Greens that are are trying to unseat the NDP. However, once people get to the voting uh, box and and they're sitting there and they've got to make their decision, how much do they really know about the Greens compared to how much do they really know about the NDP? That being said, could they be the sleeper in all of this? Could be, because the expectations are so low, right? You have two rookie leaders in this campaign, if you don't count uh, Mr. Blachette and um, Mr. Uh, uh, Bernier. Uh, but of the four main parties, Mr. Shear and Mr. Singh are new leaders. It's their first election campaign. So everybody talks about the risks with that, not knowing what to do. There's also opportunity. In the case of Mr. Singh specifically, every Buddy that I know, even NDP supporters, basically are saying, uh, yeah, this is 39 days until uh, we're reading his obituary and pronouncing the NDP dead. There's lots of reasons why they're saying that. Yesterday, uh, even on launch day, they had to punt two candidates. They don't have all their candidates in place still. They, they're trailing in the polls behind the Greens. They can't raise money. So there's a lot more to the NDP are struggling, though it's often a common narrative. So can Mr. Singh, you know, get through all of that, almost have good humor as he's about to walk the plank and somehow defy people? Yeah, it's it's most certainly possible of all the leaders that I saw yesterday. And, and maybe, again, because I'm preconditioned to think he's the walking dead, 
uh, he came across as the most authentic. And if you're getting, if you're a progressive voter, you can't vote for Sheer. You're not sure about Elizabeth May. You used to go to the NDP, and jury's still out. You see more of that. Maybe you go back to the NDP. Uh, getting back to the SNC Lavalin affair, as you said in that article in the Globe and Mail, that uh, the uh, the the investigation was going to stand down. Those are my words, not uh, not theirs. While the election campaign goes on, is that as much of an offense as? pulling something out of the hat during an election campaign? I mean, is there any right answer here? Don't you just have to follow the law and keep going? Yeah, and I think, look, I think where Trudeau's going to continue to get pressure is, uh, okay, uh, you know, he he punted this yesterday and said, well, the the clerk of the Privy Council, so his the most senior bureaucrat in Canada who reports to him decided that you know, the waiver wasn't going to be extended. And then he goes on to say, we've given the most comprehensive waiver ever. Um, I mean, the globe is going to continue to go at that. When Bob Fife has a bone, he's pretty damn dogged. Let me tell you that, knowing Bob for a long time. Um, but the prime minister will hope that will be a significant defense. But as many people pointed out yesterday, you know, Paul Martin granted a wa- waiver, uh, instructed his clerk to grant waivers during the sponsorship scandal. Stephen Harper did it around the whole Duffy investigation. So the prime minister is going to continue to get that pressure. Um, but I think there needs, as we talked about when we first started talking about this, there needs to be ongoing elements to this beyond waiver, 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 waiver. Uh, because if it's just a debate about the waiver, that's the debate the liberals will want. And Trudeau will keep going back to his line. So can the globe can one of the political parties move this into another realm does jody wilson rabel at some point or jane philpott during this election campaign say you know what it's too important to canadians i'm prepared to face the consequences of, of waiving cabinet confidence here's what really happens those are probably the what that's the more likely wild card uh, that we could see uh, reports floating late yesterday that Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, had spoke with the RCMP not only in the past but as early as last Tuesday. Uh, how big a factor do you think she is going to play in all of this, especially with the book and, and later on in the month? I actually was uh, this morning uh, with a friend of mine whose friend is running against her in in her riding. I said, wow, that's an uphill challenge. Um, anyway... Yeah, her book isn't really focused on all of this, what I understand, but it, but it's hard to imagine because she's shown um, an art for finding the stage at the right time that she's not going to say something more during this campaign, particularly if she wants to get reelected. The way she gets attention is to talk about this issue because that is how, for many, she came into the national spotlight. So I, I still expect her or potentially somebody in her camp uh, to offer more thought uh, and information on uh, what happened last year and the year before related to SNC and Lavalin. I heard one reporter during the scrum yesterday say uh, to the prime minister, what do you have to hide or, or something along those lines? What are you hiding? Yeah. Will, will that question haunt him the rest of the campaign? For sure. And I mean, you know, and the opposition's going to keep driving that, uh, you know, tonight will be interesting. The, the, the first, uh, first national leaders debate, the prime minister's not going there. One, how many people will watch it? And two, how do Mr. Shear, Mr. Singh, and Ms. May, who are all part of it, drive that debate? And I suspect you're going to hear a lot coming out of that, which reporters will then cover about, 
you know, the prime minister's ethics, what he's potentially hiding, how he is is not suitable for for re-election. So, yeah, that hiding theme is is going to continue. Sheer was hitting it hard last night in his campaign rally up your way in Woodbridge. Uh, with the Prime Minister not being at that debate tonight, uh, how does that present or does it present a more of an, uh, more of an opportunity for the opposition? Is he better to be there and try to defend himself? Well, he's made the calculation that he's not. Um, and, you know, that's what incumbent Prime Ministers tend to do. They tend to try and limit their debate yep. uh, appearances because they are the main target. Uh, again, time will tell if that's right. I think the target tonight in some way becomes Andrew Scheer uh, and with Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh trying to present themselves to those progressive voters that Justin Trudeau wants to take from them saying, look, we can we can stop Scheer. We can we, we can make sure that we hold him to account if, in fact, he becomes prime minister. Obviously, Justin Trudeau will also be a target. I think Scheer has got to manage the fact that now he's put himself in a place where he's going to be the prime target and display a reasonableness and a thoughtfulness that maybe people don't expect do you think he's the, going to be successful. Tonight. Do you think the liberal strategist thought of that? It's like, hey, rather than you going there, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, and getting stones thrown at you, you stay back from this one, and then the way, that way the next guy in line will get all the heat. Yeah, I'm sure there was some of that. Uh, and again, you know, uh, when when this election is said and done, I don't think, barring some weird event tonight, that the turning point one way or the other is going to be described as the no offense to McLean's or city TV, the McLean city TV debate and who was there and what was said. I, I, I doubt Scott, I'd wager where'd you set a good rugby ticket that nobody will remember <laughs> much about that debate when October 21st has come. Not because it's not a great platform, just because there'll be so much else afterwards. And rugby such so much more exciting. Uh, damn t- right, buddy. Tim Powers has been with us, vice chairman, Summa strategies. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much Appreciated. Take care. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Supercrawl, Hamilton's premier multi arts festival, fusing new and independent music with art installations, fashion, performance, lifestyle, theater, and uh, artesian crafts, as far as the eye can see. Supercrawl's diverse, multidisciplinary program of sound, performance, visual, and media arts is staged along a pedestrian-only creative corridor in the heart of downtown Hamilton. If you haven't been to it, you gotta go. This, I believe, is the event that put Hamilton on the map. Whether it's timing, um, not sure, but uh, or just the event itself. But I believe this... Uh, Supercrawl, certainly a massive part of the renaissance of Hamilton. I've been back here, I guess, for 15 years. And coming back at that time, uh, well, five years, I guess, prior to to the to uh, Supercrawl taking off. Obviously, Art Crawl had been on prior to that. And I remember at that time, everybody was talking about uh, what Hamilton needed. What do we do? What What sort of... What can we do? What sort of thing can we purchase? What can we be a part of? What can we build that will somehow uh, enhance the city, that will somehow uh, start a resurgence? And, you know, uh, politicians used to talk about this and, and, and civic leaders and, and business. What can we do to, to, to bring Hamilton back? What can we do to turn the corner? Uh, many thought it was sports teams. Many thought it was stadiums. Many, you know, th- that somehow there was going to be some sort of um, process, some sort of switch we could, f- we could flip, and all of a sudden Hamilton 
uh, would turn the corner. And then all of a sudden, after Art Crawl, Super Crawl comes along, and this, I hate to use the word, organic festival started growing and growing. And more and more people started talking about it. More and more people started coming into the city to, to take advantage of it, be a part of it. And the next thing you know, we got like a world-class festival on our hands, and everybody's talking about the hammer. So when we talk about the revitalization, uh, uh, the, the regeneration of this city, I think this festival is one of the key components that we'll look back in history that helped turn the page uh, for Hamilton. To talk more about all of this, Tim Potisic is with us, director of Supercrawl, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey. So uh, when you started this thing like 10 years ago, did you ever imagine it would be where it is today? No, that was never the plan. (laughs) What was the plan back then? The plan was just an experiment to see if we could get some more people to come downtown. Um, you know, as you know, and as I think you were just saying, it was a bit uh, troubled, you know, like Hamilton wasn't, uh, downtown Hamilton was, was not uh, what it was. And we'd been down here running our other businesses for quite a while. And we just felt like, we felt like that we could feel a momentum happening just with, within the art scene and people moving down and, all of a sudden we noticed more people, not a lot, but a few more people on the street. And they kind of, um, you know, for lack of a better word, they kind of acted like us and, and looked like us in some weird way. You know what I mean? Like we could tell the yep. artist community mm-hmm. and, you know, the artists came here because it was affordable. Um, and, uh, and, that, and it just sort of like, you know, ideas started percolating. Where does this fit in Hamilton's Renaissance? Because, uh, again, uh, I remember being here in the 90s. I moved back 15 years ago. Um, and, and so that's prior to, to Supercrawl starting. But certainly, you know, uh, as you mentioned, it, it wasn't positive uh, 15, 20 years ago here. Uh, everybody was looking for the silver bullet, whether it was a sports team, a stadium, something that was going to rejuvenate uh, the downtown. I honestly believe that this movement and this this event is a key component in all of this. Would you not say that, Tim? And I know you're modest about all of this, but this really started or, or pointed to the ball that was rolling. You know, I think what happened, I mean, pointed to the ball, I think is probably the, the you know, a really great way to put it. But like, honestly, I think that we, as a group, worked really hard. We had a ton of community buy-in, like some really great people down here on James and surrounding streets and artists in the neighborhood that really bought into it. And like, you know what, we could not, I, and I've always said this right from the start, it couldn't have happened on our own. We couldn't have just done this in a silo. We did it. We, we put our necks out and I think other people realize they're like, wow, these guys are actually spending their own money, putting their necks out, trying to make something happen down here. And it was a little bit of a rally cry for like the community. And then people, it was, then it wasn't just us and it was other people. That's why, you know, we've seen this tremendous growth. Like, you know, we never expected this thing to be what it is now, nor did we ever envision it. Like it just sort of, we've just been growing over a period of time organically bit by bit, not trying to like overdo it, but get to a point like where we're at now. I mean, it's, it is quite huge. It's a huge undertaking to mount this thing, you know, basically in a day, put it on for three days and then take it down in 12 hours and then be gone. Um, but no, it was a rally cry for everybody in the community. And what ended up happening was the community all started doing things. They're like, Hey, if these guys can do it, we can do it. And I guess it was just like a, a little bit of a, give everybody a, maybe an extra little push to like, just work harder and do things and, 
and try to follow what we were doing and create some of their own neat vibe, and, and that's what's happened. So did Supercrawl draw attention to what was already happening in Hamilton or partially responsible for creating it or merely just giving people a vehicle to present this? Well, I think all those things, to be quite honest. I mean, we've been pushing the boundaries on some things for sure. Uh, we've been following in others. We've been collaborating with others. Um, it's just a big... Uh, you know, a big schmozzle of different uh, elements that have kind of come together to make the festival what it is and really keep people in the community wanting to be part of it and working really hard to be part of it. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's just been fabulous. And we're just, we're steering the boat for this for sure. And we're making sure that we can continue to, you know, make this thing what it is. We definitely want to, uh, we do want to continue to expand and do things for the city and make it bigger and better and uh, more impressive. Um, continue to elevate elevate the bar and everything that we do um, because everybody's elevating elevating the bar around us now as well, right? So it's just like we've got yeah, to, that's a good point. Driving. You know, that's a good point. The city is a lot different now than it was when you started this thing. How how do you do you have to change as the city grows? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, for sure. Um, and it's uh, tr- trust me, it definitely has its challenges down here. There's there's still, you know, there's lots of people that um, the vast majority love it, but there's certainly other people that don't. And um, some people get it, some people don't. I mean, I think we're on the we're on the side of most people get it and want to come down and participate and be part of it and enjoy themselves. Um, street festivals are the greatest thing. They're so much fun. They're very unique, and we followed some really great models from other cities as well um, in the things that we do. So, yeah. Um, we're we're super happy, and we're definitely going to continue to keep pushing uh, for new elements and new people in the community that want to be uh, want to be involved. So, uh, ten years this year started back in two thousand and nine. A few thousand people, not the best weather. How do you keep control of this growth? How do you how do you make sure this doesn't become something you don't want it to be? Uh, well, that's a really big challenge. I mean, we try to stick to our guns. We have a good board. Uh, that, you know, we answer to as far as like how we're programming. And, you know, we definitely have some really strong mandates and visions about what we're doing. And, um, you know, we have really strong um, criteria as far as like what we have to do. Like we find it, you know, when we're booking, we're managing local talent. So we have to make sure that uh, absolutely more than half of the talent that's at this festival is, is local. And we exceed that every year. So we put a lot of things in place to ensure that we continue to like you know, keep the same vibe, make sure that it stays community, uh, that we don't lose our way. Is that the secret to the success here? It's not trying to give people something that they want from another area, but selling our own wares and then hoping people come in and like them. Absolutely. And, and, and bringing things that people like, again, you know, discovery has always been a key word that we've used because we're music discoverers ourselves. And, Everything that we do, every genre that we, we bring uh, to be part of the event is all about discovery. And I think it's been a really great model for us. Um, it's exciting. I, I get a really huge kick out of bringing things to people that they don't know about. You know, like, who is this artist? Why is this he- artist headlining a stage? I've hmm. never heard of them before. Or why are they even, you know, even if they're not headlining, if they're just on the stage, who are these artists? The greatest thing I've found in arts and culture is just stumbling into things that you don't know about and then walking away like a fan. It's like, it's the most exhilarating uh, process. How hard is that to do once you're driving a festival this large? How do you stop this from slipping into the mainstream and becoming a midway caricature of itself? 
<laughs> yeah, you have to be very careful. Trust me. It's like, you know, we we pine over artists uh, who we're going to book, who we're not going to book. And we definitely don't want to become um, some of, you know, of what you just mentioned. You I mean, know, you, it would be very easy for you to call a booker, call whoever, and just bring in a pile of big acts. But that's not what this is about. But as long as you have the backdrop of Hamilton, the city, as your canvas... Really, you can't lose that, can you? Because you're still down there on James Street North. Look around. This is what it's about. Absolutely. Yeah, like you've got the community. You're in grand community right here in the first place. And then, you know, we're working in with the artist community that's ingrained down here still, too. And um, it's just the best. It's just the best way to move forward. And like, you know, trust me, we de- we definitely watch ourselves. When we're booking commercial artists. We make sure they're the types of commercial artists. Obviously, we want everybody to, we want younger artists that are local that are playing to 10 or 20 people in a club to be commercial artists one day. I mean, there's Mm. nothing wrong with being that, but we have to make sure that the ones that we, that we do bring to this festival fit with the vibe of the ones that are, we're nurturing to bring up to that level as well. All right. So how did the rumor start that the Arkells were going to show up? Uh, I I have no idea. I don't want to (laughs) know. I got a tweet this morning. And and then a bunch of phone calls from people saying, Tim, what's happening? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll message Max. So I send him a I send him a text, and his manager a text, and his agent a text. And uh, Max was sleeping because he's in L.A. right now with hmm. the band. And uh, at about ten o'clock, he texted me back, and he's like, Yeah, no, we're not playing. Um, and then we had a nice conversation, and his manager was like, within a thirty seconds, was like, No, absolutely, this is not happening. <laughs> Um, so, you know, just, uh, I don't know how it happened. Somebody put something out there. I think it may have, it may even be taken down off social media now. I'm not sure. Um, but I have some professionals in the office that deal with that stuff and they've, you know, they've dealt with it and worked with the Arkells team to do it in the most, um, you know, pleasing manner. Is everybody. this good or bad? I guess any, I guess as long as you're talking about the event, it's good, but you know, you don't want false information getting out there either. Oh no. I mean, I think that, you know, generally, um, if a band of that caliber who had played the festival a few years before yeah. decided they wanted to do a pop-up show at City Hall, I think we would have known about <laughs> yeah, it. But. Really? Somebody would have uh, called somebody. Yeah. All right, sure. so talk about who will be there. What can we expect? And I ask you to do this every year, but describe this event to someone who has never been. Uh, well, you know what I have to say? I think we're probably, this could be the like maybe one of the most eclectic years we've ever had. Uh, so much diversity in our music lineup and our fashion lineup and uh, the theater performances and the art installations, everything is quite diverse this year on the music side. Um, You know, not even just from the headliner perspective, but we do have Buffy St. Marie on Friday, but on the other stage, you know, the other big stage, we've got uh, Red Hill Valley's incredible local talent. And the other one, we've got an Mm. urban, a bunch of urban acts, a couple from Toronto, a couple from Hamilton. And our headliner is, you know, not, he's well known on the internet in Toronto, but not in Hamilton. He, he raps in Punjab. He's Muslim. We have two Muslim urban acts on, on the stage, and that's, wow. you know, speaking to the community. And we don't see, you know, we that's the things that we try, try to do, right? We don't see that happening at other festivals, and we, we can take the chance uh, on doing things like that. And I don't think it's a chance. That's probably not the right word, but, like, just, you know, expose things to the community that you wouldn't normally get exposed to. Um, so that's Friday. On Saturday, we've got Bahamas. Uh, an incredibly talented group of people. Um, such a great, great band. Royal Alberta Advantage stars from Montreal. And then uh, I, I always book one specific thing. Like, I book everything for me, but I always book one specific thing that I definitely have to be at. I don't care if there's half the streets <laughs> on fire. 
I say that tongue in cheek. Yes. Um, I have to be at this show. It's uh, Betty Lavette who's closing the festival on Sunday. Uh, 72-year-old Motown, Detroit Motown soul yeah. singer. Wow. Uh, her new album is just off the charts incredible. It's People are going to be blown away. So that's, if I have to say, that's probably the one name that is not definitely not a household name, but should be. And I think people come down to see that, they're just going to be like, oh my God, what what is happening in Hamilton? <laughs> So have you ever taken a step and thought, yeah, it's a little too far that time? Or do you just think, no, I'm, I'm going to go to where the light guides me? No, we, you know what, if it's, if, if we think we've gone one step too far, that's probably good, you know? That's pushing the boundary. Yeah, like, and that's, that's what we do, and that's what we want to do. So, um, and I don't apologize for our programming. I think it's top-notch, world-class, it, and it's not coming at a world-class dollar figure you know what i mean like we're running this is a big festival with a big budget but like you know there's festivals that don't rival supercrawl that have a have budgets 10 times the size of ours so um i think we do a great job with every penny and we try to bring things here that people will appreciate even if they don't know the name 10th anniversary of Supercrawl this weekend, James Street North. Tim Potasic's been with us, uh, director of the James Street Supercrawl. Uh, Tim, congratulations again. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have another great festival. And to those of you that have never been, you have to check this out. It is truly unique. Tim, thanks for the time. Good luck this weekend. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.